Well, if you'd like to have your Bibles open then at that uh, passage we read a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. Now, as I said, this uh, letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And it's a church that he knew well. Most of the Christians in that church were saved through Paul's preaching. And so they owed him a great deal. But the church has begun to allow the uh, the values, the, the thinking of society around them to negatively influence their view of Paul. Because as we said a few moments ago, Corinthian society was just obsessed with image, with with status. Their leaders needed to be charismatic, dynamic. And in particular, it was very important that they were able to dazzle an audience with their displays of, of intellectual brilliance. It didn't really matter whether what they said made sense or whether it was even true. But as long as it sounded good and they looked good while they were saying it. Well, Paul could see the, the obvious dangers of relying on, on that sort of, of technique, on, on uh, making big, powerful, eloquent speeches in order to convince people of the gospel. So when Paul came to Corinth, he had preached that deliberately clear, simple, straightforward gospel message. Because Paul wanted it to be clear that if anyone did believe the gospel, if anyone was saved through his preaching, it would be obvious that it wasn't just because they'd been won over to Paul's cause by his, his dazzling display of wisdom or been blown away by his, his amazing eloquence. He wanted it to be clear that if anyone had come to believe the gospel, it was only because the power of God was at work. And so God would get the glory and not, and not man. But as we've seen, the, uh, the church in Corinth, they've begun to allow the, uh, the values of the world around them to, to influence their view of Paul. They've started to find Paul a bit embarrassing because, because, because Paul wasn't very impressive. When he spoke, he used simple language, words that, that even uneducated people could understand. Certainly nothing that was going to impress anybody. And they could, they could see Paul's failures, all the suffering that he had endured as a result of his ministry. If you read the, uh, the, the book of Acts, it's, it seems every town that Paul went to, he either got beaten up or thrown out or a riot started, whatever it was. And so Paul, uh, they've begun to distance themselves from Paul. And by the time he comes to write this, uh, this second uh, letter of Corinthians, uh, there's now a movement within the church to try and cut ties with Paul completely. And so Paul is writing to defend himself, to defend his ministry but not by denying their accusations, not by trying to appear impressive. Paul freely admits that he has suffered. He is a failure in the world's eyes. But Paul says the things that he has suffered, they're simply the proof that he truly is an apostle of Jesus Christ. In chapter one and in verse five, Paul says there that he shares abundantly in Christ's suffering. So by distancing themselves from Paul, because he's suffered, because he's considered a failure in the world's eyes, 
The real problem is the church is beginning to distance themselves from Christ. Jesus wasn't admired. He wasn't respected by the world. He had no status. He took the form of a servant, didn't he? He was despised and rejected. He was mocked. He was hated. And ultimately, he was hung on a cross. And so Paul is defending his role as an apostle of that Jesus Christ, as a representative of that Jesus. And in doing so, Paul is is answering his own question, the question that he raised himself in, in chapter 2 and verse 16, where he asks there, who is sufficient for these things? Who is worthy to act as, as God's representative, to serve as an apostle of the sinless Son of God? Well, Paul says, I am sufficient. Despite the, the appearance of the contrary, Paul says, I am sufficient. He knows that he is sufficient for this great task. And the, the reason why he knows is because of the new covenant. The new covenant. That's the, the big theme in this chapter. So what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a, a binding agreement, maybe like a, a contract but between two parties. A good example of a, a covenant is, is marriage. A bride and a groom, they, they make binding promises to one another, to, to love one another, to be faithful to one another for the rest of their lives. They bind themselves together, don't they? And indeed, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that um, marriage is, is a picture of the covenant that God makes with his people. And the fact that Paul talks here about a new covenant, well, that tells us there must also be an old covenant. And as we read through the, uh, the chapter, the references that Paul makes there to, to Moses, to tablets of stone and so on, it's making clear there, isn't it, what, what Paul is referring to when he talks about the old covenant. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. God, God bound himself to that nation. And that covenant was, was ratified. The, the contract was signed, if you like, at Mount Sinai. But what we need to remember about that old covenant is that it was conditional. So there at, at Mount Sinai, the people gather and God gives them his commandments. And God says to the people, if you obey me, if you can keep these commandments, if you worship me as your only God, well, then I will bless you. But God also says to the people, if you break these commandments, if you disobey me, if you worship other gods, well, then I will curse you. And so we see the, the old covenant is conditional. God promises to bless the people of Israel. He promises to give them life, but only if they keep all his commandments. If they break his commandments, if they are unfaithful to him, well, God promises he will curse them. And ultimately, that means death. So what do the people of Israel say when they're confronted with the law of God? When Moses reads out those Ten Commandments, he reads out all the rules, all the commandments. And he says, if you want to enter this covenant, well, you need to keep all of these rules 
perfectly all the time. And if you ever break any of them, well, then God will curse you. God will punish you. Now, surely you would think they would say, oh, that's too hard. That, that's too difficult. God is too holy. We are sinful. We, we can't keep all these laws perfectly all the time. But is, is that what the people of Israel say? All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They really think they can do it. They really think that they can keep all God's commandments all the time. Well, the rest of the Old Testament uh, proves beyond doubt that they can't. The prophet Jeremiah, he diagnoses the problem. Jeremiah says this, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. The law may well have been written on tablets of stone, but Jeremiah tells us sin is written on the people's hearts. They can't keep an external law because they have sinful, unregenerate hearts and the law cannot change their hearts. But Jeremiah has more to say because the problem is even worse. Not only do the people have sinful hearts, they also have deceitful hearts. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The people have sinful hearts, but they can't see it. They think they're good. They think that they can keep all the commandments. Their own hearts are deceiving them. And so in theory, there are these two possible outcomes of the old covenant. If you obey, well, God will bless you. You will live. And if you disobey, well, then God will curse you. You will perish. But in reality, there was only ever going to be one outcome from that old covenant. And that was disobedience and death. What about you here this morning? You may not have consciously signed up to that old covenant. But if you're thinking that you can earn God's favor, earn your place in heaven by your good deeds, by all your efforts at keeping God's laws, well, you are wrong. Your heart is deceiving you. No one can keep all God's laws perfectly all the time. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But coming back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah also tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the, the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I brought them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them 
and I will write it on their hearts. So coming back then to our passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul, he may not be outwardly impressive. He may not have the sort of image, the sort of uh, uh, status that the uh, society of Corinth thinks is important. But Paul knows that he is sufficient for the great task of preaching the gospel because this new covenant has come. And in the opening verses of, of chapter three, Paul there gives us some evidence for the new covenant, the proof that it is here. In the opening verse, Paul talks about letters of recommendation. Well, is this a letter of recommendation? Is, is this what Paul is doing? Is he, is he trying to write a letter saying what a great guy he is and hoping they realize that they've been wrong about him? No. Paul already has all the letter of recommendation that he needs. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Not written on a piece of paper, but written on our hearts. You see, Paul loves these Corinthian Christians. They are written on his heart. And this this letter of recommendation is there to be known and read by all. The fact that Paul loves this church in Corinth is obvious to anyone who meets him. Even after how how badly they've treated him, despite all of the the pain, the distress, the, the disappointment that they've caused him, he loves these believers deeply and his love for them is is obvious to anyone who meets him. Well, how then is, is that evidence of the new covenant? Well, remember who Paul is or rather who he was. He was Saul of Tarsus, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul was raised a Jew, the most devout of devout Jews. And he was raised to see Gentiles as as dirty, as, as unclean dogs. And so zealous was he for his religion. Well, he was prepared to have Christians put to death. And yet here he is displaying Deep, heartfelt, genuine love for Gentile Christians. This is, this is impossible love. This, uh, this church made up of Gentile Christians is written on Paul's heart. So who wrote them there? Well, Paul says they're written there not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. This, uh, this miraculous, this unnatural, this impossible love that Paul has can only have come from God. Paul knows himself. The, the fact that he loves these Gentile Corinthian Christians can only mean one thing, that the spirit of God is at work. And that's the evidence for the new covenant. The the old covenant, those laws of Moses, the the Ten Commandments, they were written on tablets of stone. And the law says love. That's That's the summary, isn't it, of the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law tells us to love. 
but it's impossible for us to do it. Just look at Paul as an example. No one tried to keep the law more than Paul did. The law told him to love, but did all of his his efforts at keeping the law turn him into a, a loving man? No, far from it. He hated Jesus Christ. He hated Christians. He hated Gentiles. That external law written on tablets of stone, it couldn't do anything to change Paul into a genuinely loving man. And yet here he is with Corinth written across his heart. He loves this church that's made up of Gentile Christians, Christians, people who follow Jesus. So what is it that's made the difference? Well, remember, what did Jeremiah say that God would do when this new covenant came? He said, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. This impossible, this this miraculous love that Paul has for these Gentile Christians is clear proof that that new covenant that God promised to send, that he promised to make, really is here. And the fact that Paul has experienced for himself the transforming power of the new covenant, well, that gives Paul the confidence that he needs to preach the same message to others. Look at what he says in verse four. Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Paul is now able to to preach with great confidence. But his confidence doesn't come from his own cleverness. It doesn't come from his own skill in in explaining uh, the, the truths of the gospel. His confidence lies in the power of the message that he's proclaiming. And he makes that much clear in uh, in verse five. He says there, doesn't he? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Paul describes himself there as, as a minister. That word just means a, a servant. Paul is only a servant, but he serves a great master. He is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And the message that that Paul proclaims now is is Christ's new covenant. These, These great promises of salvation that Jesus himself has made and that Jesus has personally entrusted to Paul. So Paul may only be a minister. He may only be a servant, but he has great confidence in his ministry because he knows the power. He knows the greatness. He knows the glory of the master that he serves. And he's experienced that power, the reality of these promises for himself. So what about you? What about us? Do you ever feel insufficient? Do you ever feel unworthy to to bear the name of Christ? Unworthy to to represent him before a a fallen world? Insufficient to to share the gospel with those around us? Sure, we all do at times, don't we? Well, we need to think like Paul. 
we need to remember that our sufficiency doesn't lie in ourselves. It doesn't lie in, in our wisdom, in our abilities, in our clever arguments. Our sufficiency lies in the message, in the power of the message that we proclaim. And so just like Paul, we don't need to rely on gimmicks and clever arguments and brilliant rhetoric or whatever it may be to share the gospel. We don't need to pander to what the world thinks is impressive. You remember the uh, the Philippian jailer? Paul was, was in jail in, in Philippi. That jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answers, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That, that's it. It's, it's that simple. And so if, if you're not a Christian, that's what you must do to be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust him to save you. Look to him alone to rescue you from your sin, to forgive you to cleanse you, to reconcile you to God. You need to, to believe the promises that he has made, that he can, that he will do that for you if you cry out to him in faith. I can guarantee it. Not because of any power or authority that, that I have, but because the Lord Jesus Christ himself has promised to do that. These are the promises that Jesus himself has made through this new covenant, these new new covenant promises. Well, let's think a little bit more then about this new covenant. Because what Paul does in verses 7 to 11 is he compares the new covenant with the old covenant. Because Paul wants to show us the glory of the new covenant. And he does that by making um, three stark contrasts uh, between these two covenants to demonstrate that the new covenant is far more glorious than the old. Now we need to note that Paul isn't saying that the old covenant had no glory. We can see from uh, the, the descriptions that, that Paul gives us that he, he knows that the old covenant was a, a glorious covenant. For one thing, it was it was made with a, a glorious God. The commandments are, are glorious commandments. These these commandments they they reflect they they flow out from the the character of God Himself. It's just that the new covenant far exceeds, far surpasses the any any glory the old covenant had. In fact, Paul's going to tell us that what once had glory. The old covenant, what once had glory, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Well, let's look then at these three contrasts uh, that Paul makes. Firstly, he contrasts the results of the two covenants. So look again at verses seven and eight. There Paul says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now notice here, Paul calls the old covenant the ministry 
of death. Because that's what it led to. The result of the old covenant was death. We've already thought, haven't we? The the terms of the old covenant were clear. Moses himself said to the people of Israel, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then you shall live. But if your heart turns away, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. So with with the old covenant, there were, in theory, weren't there, those two possible outcomes. If you obey God's commandments, then you you will live, you will have life. But if you break the commandments, then God will curse you. God will bring death upon you. But as we've already thought, in reality, there was only ever going to be one result for anyone who was who signed up to that old covenant. Even Moses told the people of Israel at the time, I know that after my death, you will act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Sooner or later, and in most cases sooner, the people were going to break the terms of the covenant. They were going to break God's commandments because they had unregenerate hearts. They had sinful hearts. The law may have been written on tablets of stone, but as Jeremiah says, sin is written on the people's hearts. And so because the result of the old co- the old covenant was conditional, because the outcome depended on the people's ability to keep God's law, something they could never do, the inevitable result of signing up to that old covenant was that they would fail, that they would be cursed by God and that they would perish. The result of the old covenant was always death. But Paul calls the new covenant the ministry of the spirit. And as he's just said in verse six, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. When someone enters the new covenant, they receive the Holy Spirit. God himself comes and and dwells within them. That person is, is united to Christ by his spirit. And so they come to share the life of Christ. And the new covenant is unconditional. It doesn't depend upon your ability to keep God's law. It is a covenant of grace. It is God's free gift. The spirit gives life, says Paul. And because the the blessings of this new covenant are given freely, they're given unconditionally by God. They cannot fail. They cannot be lost. They cannot be forfeited. They cannot be taken away. The life that the spirit gives is eternal life. The result of the old covenant was death. But the result of the new covenant is life, eternal life. Isn't that so much more glorious? 
Well, secondly, Paul contrasts the judgments of these two covenants. In verse 9, Paul says, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Paul now calls the old covenant the ministry of condemnation. Someone who signs up to the old covenant, well, they're asking to be judged on the basis of their performance, on their ability to keep God's law. If you are judged to, uh, judged to have adequately kept God's laws, well, then you will be blessed. But if you are judged to have broken any of God's laws, well, then you will be cursed. The judgment of that old covenant was based on whether you can keep God's commands or not. But as we've seen again and again, whilst in theory there are those two possible outcomes, really there was only ever going to be one inevitable outcome. Again, you may not have consciously signed up to that old covenant, but if you are trying to to earn God's blessing on the basis of your own goodness, on the basis of your ability to keep God's law, if that's the standard by which you want to be judged, well, then you are going to be found guilty. You are going to be condemned. And it's no use saying, but I've done all all these good things. Surely they outweigh the bad things. Those aren't the terms of the covenant. God demands absolute perfection in all things at all times. God says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it, has become guilty of breaking all of it. So listen to what Paul says in Romans about God's judgment of mankind's performance, of God's judgment on your performance. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For by works of the law, by your own efforts to keep the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sometimes people say the Bible is hard to understand. I think that's pretty clear. None of us can live up to the standards of the law. We all fall short. The judgment of that old covenant is guilty. It's a covenant of condemnation. But Paul calls the new covenant the ministry of righteousness. So what does that mean? So what is righteousness? Well, it's a it's a legal declaration. It's a judgment made upon a person. If someone is declared righteous, it means they've been found not guilty. And that's the judgment of the new covenant. Under the new covenant, guilty sinners are declared to be righteous. But how is that possible? We've just heard, haven't we? God's clear judgment on all of mankind. We have all sinned. We are all guilty. 
So how then can God declare anyone not guilty? Well, under the new covenant, the guilt, the condemnation that you deserve is dealt with. It's already been paid in full. So you can go free. Continuing in that passage in Romans, after declaring so plainly that the law condemns, Paul goes on and says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed with the coming of the new covenant. A new righteousness has now appeared, a righteousness which actually meets God's standards. And Paul says that this righteousness, this new righteousness can be given to the unrighteous. It is given as a gift. How? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus, they receive his righteousness. Our guilt is taken away. And the perfect life of Jesus is credited to our account. So when God looks at us now, he doesn't see our failure. He doesn't see our guilt. He doesn't see our sin any longer. Instead, he sees the cleanness of Jesus. And so he can declare that we are righteous for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The result of the new covenant is righteousness. It is a ministry of righteousness. And so Paul can say again in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. The old covenant is a ministry of condemnation. But the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness. Isn't that so much more glorious? So Paul has contrasted the results of these two covenants, the judgments of these two covenants. So now thirdly and finally, Paul contrasts the duration of these two covenants. Just look again at verse 11. There Paul says, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul says the old covenant was being brought to an end. The old covenant was only temporary. It was never meant to go on forever. It was glorious, but its glory was fading away. It was being brought to an end. Now, God knew that it would fail, or rather God knew that sinful human beings would fail. He knew that despite our arrogance, despite our pride, despite our deceitful hearts telling us otherwise, we are all sinful 
and corrupt. We are incapable of keeping God's laws. And so I think one purpose of the of the old covenant was to expose just how incapable we are of being good. Those people of Israel, they were convinced, weren't they, that they were able to keep all God's laws. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they cry. Well, God gives them the opportunity to test that claim. But despite everything that he did for that nation, they fail as God knew they would. Even back in the Garden of Eden, as soon as Adam and Eve fell, God had already promised there, hadn't he, that one day he would send a saviour. He knew that if anyone was going to be saved, he would have to save them. He would have to put in place a covenant that could change people's hearts. And that old covenant isn't it. But Paul's message is that that new covenant, the covenant that God had promised to make, that new covenant is here. God has sent that promised saviour, his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus didn't come to try and encourage us to, to try harder, to keep the rules better. He didn't come to, to send us a good example. He came to fulfill the law, to keep all of it fully, perfectly, completely, all the time. And to forgive us our sins, to take the punishment that we deserve for all the times that we have broken God's law. And then to give us new hearts, clean hearts, hearts that want to keep God's law, hearts that can keep God's law. And he gives us himself, his spirit to help us. And so says Paul, this new covenant is permanent because God has done it all because it relies upon God it can never fail Jesus is able to save to the uttermost completely for all eternity all those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us that old covenant was only temporary. Its glory was passing away. But the new covenant is permanent. It is eternal. Isn't that so much more glorious? Well, Paul, he may not have been very impressive according to the world's standards. He may not have had the kind of, of image or, or status that the people in the society around admired. But what a glorious role he had to play. He is a minister of this new covenant, this glorious covenant. His glory, his sufficiency, it doesn't come from himself, from his own ability, from his clever arguments or whatever it may be. His sufficiency to act as, a, as an apostle, as a servant of Jesus Christ comes from the covenant that he serves. And so let's Thank God for the new covenant. Because we're, we're blessed to attend churches where uh, these doctrines of, of grace are preached week in, week out. There is a danger that we can, we can take these things for granted. But hopefully we've been reminded this morning of what we've been rescued from. A ministry of death 
a ministry of, of condemnation, that helpless, that hopeless condition that all of us were in as sinners before God. And hopefully, too, we've been reminded of just how glorious this new covenant of ours really is. This new covenant is the ministry of the spirit and the spirit gives life. The new covenant is a ministry of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And the new the new covenant is permanent. Its blessings are, are eternal. So let's share Paul's confidence. Let's let's think, let's act like Paul did. Let's have confidence like he had, not not in ourselves, but in the power, in the glory of the new covenant that we proclaim. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel. Let's remember it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, may God help us. May God encourage us in these things by his spirit. Amen.